Welcome to Worlds of Tomorrow. An occasional feature we'll be running looking at some of the best in science fiction cinema. From acknowledged classics to forgotten gems, we'll be covering them all. Some of them you'll have seen, some you won't. Some you'll agree with me on, and some you'll wonder what I was drinking when I watched them, but trust me, that's half the fun. Spoilers abound, so if you haven't seen the movie and want to be surprised, go rent it now. We'll be here when you get back. Otherwise, set a course for fun, because it's time to enter the worlds of tomorrow. Film tends to be perceived like geology, rigidly defined bands of style and direction, of acting and subject matter, that process neatly down through the years. Silent gives way to sound, black and white to colour, clothes styles change, genres lose favour, and the dominoes keep falling, keep expanding, in a pattern which continues to break new ground at the same time as honouring the past. This, of course, isn't true. Film is like everything else. There are no tidy boundaries, no neat delineation between past, present and future, and nowhere is that scrappy, untidy approach more apparent than in science fiction. In turn, it's rarely been more perfectly demonstrated than it is in 2010. It's a film haunted by many ghosts, not the least of which is both it is its predecessor, and the most visible of which is the serene, timeless, no longer even remotely human David Bowman. Firstly, though, there's the Cold War, which here is both projected into the future and mapped onto the past. The Cuban Missile Crisis is transposed to Central America, and as in the opening scene, two scientists dance around one another, two tiny, fragile men, dwarfed by a vast radio telescope array, it becomes clear that this is simply how the world is. Both men have learned to move around their respective governments. Both men have kept their eyes firmly on the monolith, on the events of 2001, and in doing so, both men have kept their eyes on the one thing that their governments have lost sight of. The future. This is very dangerous territory for an SF movie, offering writers and directors a world of easy, pat narrative choices. Superficially, 2010 makes exactly these choices as the war threatens to turn hot and the American contingent of the Leonov's crew are forced to move to the Discovery. This, and the eventual unification of the two crews in their race to escape from Jupiter, could be played with the sort of chest-beating patriotic emotion that Armageddon's detractors rightly cite as one of its major faults. Here, though, it works, and the reason is simple. Pragmatism. The world these people are orbiting and the events they're witnessing are so immense, so impossible, to fully comprehend that the crew of the Leonov are all forced to focus on what's human, whether it's providing support to a total stranger during a terrifying journey through Jupiter's upper atmosphere, or Max keeping Kurnow sane on an EVA across to a ship that may or may not be the grave of its pilot. It's very easy, compulsory even, to view this as a cerebral, flat, even dull movie, but the emotion is there, it's just kept under control. There are no huge speeches, there are no huge moments of catharsis. All you get are a group of humans, very, very far from home, walking in the shadow of giants, one natural, one constructed. No one is obviously scared because everyone is terrified all the time. Then, of course, there's 2001. 2010 is by definition a ghoul, with the characters, crew and audiences alike all revisiting the scene of the events of 2001, the discovery. This is where the film crystallises, where you can actually feel the script gather itself, the elements fall into place. The trip to the discovery is not just a trip to the past, but a means of understanding that past, interrogating it, placing it in a context that can be understood. The stocky, functional, ugly Leonov is a stark contrast to the sleek, antiseptic discovery, and as the two ships meet, two schools of thought come with them. This is the moment where science fiction pre-alien and science fiction post-alien meet, and the difference between the two is fascinating. The discovery is clean, aesthetic in every sense, and dead, 
It's a ship whose time has come and gone, a window into the past, a means of understanding what happened, and nothing more. Everything from the iconic design to its first appearance in the film, tumbling end over end between Jupiter and Io, shows it as a moment frozen in amber, the last great attempt made to explore the planet, and the price that was paid for it. In stark contrast, the Leonov echoes the pragmatism of its crew. It's very much a descendant of the Nostromo, a bulky, ugly, functional ship, with none of the Discovery's clean lines. It's Russian military invention and practicality given form, and the ship's tight corridors, bulkheads and compartments all speak to a future very different to the one filmed by Stanley Kubrick. On Discovery, the future is an idealised white space for us to write our names across. On Leonov, the future is a cramped space filled with systems designed to keep us alive. An ideal is replaced by a need, an aesthetically pleasing design by a functional one. Discovery represents the future we thought we'd have, and Leonov represents the future, odds are, will get. This pragmatism allows 2010 to approach the central idea that 2001 did in a very different and much more accessible way. The cold, aesthetic approach taken by the original is replaced here by a combination of curiosity and blank, uncomprehending terror. The Discovery and her crew stumbled onto something they couldn't possibly have expected, they couldn't possibly understand, and that ignorance, that lack of foreknowledge in many ways, lies at the heart of the film. It's not their fault. They simply react as best they can to a deteriorating situation. The crew of the Leonov don't have that luxury, and in Floyd's case, are actually actively complicit in what happened aboard Discovery. The revelation that Hal was acting on two sets of contradictory orders, and the clear implication that Floyd knew about this, is a nicely played moment that only accentuates the tension of the film's second hour. That tension, between old and new, functional and idealistic, lies at the heart of the film and many of its conflicts. There's a sense, as the film progresses, of the past, of its predecessor, genuinely beginning to recede into the distance as first Floyd, then Kurnow, and finally Chandra, all receive absolute, unequivocal proof that this is not the game they set out to play. Scheider's Floyd is superficially happily retired. However, within seconds of the film opening, it's become clear that he's haunted by the loss of discovery and his role in it. He's also haunted by being one step away from history. Bowman, Poole, and Hal saw something incredible. Floyd sent them to look at it. There is a real sense of his being a man aware that the world is passing him by, someone for whom the revelation that Discovery is crashing into Io is an end, rather than a means. It's a great, fascinating, spiky, almost minimalist performance, and like Kurnow and Chandra, one whose central pillar is intelligence. It's how the three men use their intellects that delineate them, and Floyd, with his mixture of quiet, desperate intuition and growing frustration, is a fascinating leading man for a film like this. Lithgow's Walter Kurnow uses his intelligence in a very different way. Lithgow is a great comic actor, and Kurnow's stream of consciousness, almost rhythmic jokes, set-up, set-up, punchline, every single time, not only provide some welcome comic relief, but also emphasise a point he makes during the EVA across to Discovery. Walter shouldn't be there. He's an engineer, not an astronaut. Where Floyd's intelligence is a weapon, Kurnow's is a shield, and he is in many ways the most overly out of his depth of all the characters. It's interesting that what gets him through his initial problems, then, is finding a kindred spirit in Max, played by Elia Baskin, the cosmonaut who helps him across to the Discovery. It's also worth noting as well that the film dilutes their friendship considerably, as in the novel, the two men become a couple. Finally, Bob Balaban's Chandra is the quietest of the three, and arguably gives the most powerful performance. Chandra's single-minded, paternal dedication to Hal is a source of real concern for other crew members, and when it becomes clear Hal must be sacrificed for them to live, it's just a moment where we see the impact it has on him. And then he does the job anyway. 
His final scene with Hal, mirroring his final scene on Earth with Sal, is heartbreaking as Chandra finds himself perched physically and metaphorically on the exact dividing line between two worlds and two times. Behind him is Discovery, Hal and the past. Ahead of him is Earth, Sal, and a future where his work will be utterly vindicated. Hal is fine. Sal is on the cusp of a quantum leap of evolution and Chandra did nothing wrong. His intelligence is a tool, a means of dissecting the events of the past and finding himself, if not redeemed, then certainly vindicated. And in the end, it's up to the viewer to decide whether that, or his desire to survive, is what motivates him to go through with the plan. But for all this, 2010 is a film whose heart lies in simplicity. An impossibly vast black rectangle orbiting the largest world in the solar system. A definitive exclamation point that says this is where the future you thought you had ends. This is where the real future starts. The events of the film's close, the horrifying and at the same time strangely beautiful image of the monolith, replicated thousands of times eating Jupiter, cannot be overstated. It's the moment where we are shown the map of the universe, of the rest of our natural lives as a species, and told, you are here. The future arrives suddenly, explosively, and it's ushered in by what used to be a clean-cut heroic man in a 1960s spacesuit. There is a very real sense of the torch being passed, of the beautiful, elegant and obsolete discovery being sacrificed to push the ugly, functional Leonov home. The symbolism of the ship names is worth noting too. The discovery has, after all, already been made. Whilst the Leonov, named for the first cosmonaut to walk in space, is the first ship to examine the monolith for so long. A man in an outdated spacesuit and an outdated body says goodbye to his fiancée. An artificial intelligence discovers that to learn more it must be destroyed, and three scientists make peace with their pasts and move forward into their future. Tiny events, immense consequences, all echoing a single epochal change in the middle solar system, and all leading to the same simple poetic concept. The night is over, and humanity stumbles out into the light, both warned and reassured by a simple message. All these worlds are yours except Europa. Attempt no landing there. Use them together. Use them in peace.